It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Before we get to this week's episode, a word from our sponsor. Erectile dysfunction is more common than you might think. 52% of men over 40 will experience ED at some point, and about 75% of those men don't seek treatment. That's why Roman makes it easy to get expert treatment from a U.S. licensed physician all online. No judgment, no hassle, no hours spent in the waiting room. With Roman, you get expert medical care for ED right in the comfort and privacy of your own home. Everything is online, so it's convenient and discreet to contact a doctor about prescription medication. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com major and complete an online visit with your medical history and symptoms. A licensed physician will evaluate your online visit and let you know within 24 hours if medication is right for you. If prescribed by the doctor, Roman delivers genuine medication right to your door with free two-day shipping. Just go to GetRoman.com major to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com major to get started with a free online visit. That's GetRoman.com major. Scott Sharp played four seasons at George Washington University before becoming a 25th round draft pick of the Cincinnati Reds in 1994. His minor league playing career lasted four years, but he remained in the game as an area scout, working for three clubs over the next eight seasons. In 2006, Sharp joined the Kansas City Royals as assistant director of player development, beginning his ascent up the ranks of the club's front office. He played a key role in the development of players including Alex Gordon, Eric Hosmer, and Mike Moustakis, who all helped the Royals win the 2015 World Series, the team's first championship in three decades. I sat down with Sharp to discuss player development, the importance of having homegrown players in a small market, the change in culture in Kansas City, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Royals Vice President and Assistant General Manager, Scott Sharp. Scott, you grew up in Sykesville, Maryland, big Orioles fan, uh, were number eight in Little League for Cal Ripken Jr. Was baseball always your biggest passion? It really was. My mom introduced me to the game. Um, as an Oriole fan, she was, and um, I grew up wanting to be you know, the next Cal Ripken, the next Brooks Robinson, and saw many games in Memorial Stadium, and um, you know, it was, it was always... Um, a fabric of, of who I was and continues to be. Uh, you earned a bachelor's degree in accounting from George Washington University, played four seasons as an infielder, catcher, and pitcher. You were drafted as a catcher, I believe, right? I was. I was an infielder for my first three years. Uh, after I did not get drafted my junior year, my coach, we had lost two of our catchers, and my coach was like, hey, why don't, why don't you try catching? And uh, that may be a, a, a path to get drafted. And it did. So 25th round of the 94 draft, the Reds take you. You spent four years in the minor leagues. What was your minor league experience like? Uh, I went to a school that was a pretty diverse um, group of students, and the minor leagues was far more diverse than that. It was it was a really interesting life experience. Uh, I would not trade it for, for any other experience I've had. I, I really enjoyed it. I played for some really good managers. Uh, I had a lot of fun. To, to this day, I'll run into old teammates 
uh, and I only played four years. I can only imagine the guys that play for 15 or 20 years, their experiences, but I, but I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. During your time in the minors, I looked up some of the players you played against, included Vladimir Guerrero, Andrew Jones. Could you tell at that early of an age, and you're still a player at that point, not an evaluator, but could you tell that those players were special? Most certainly, and I, I had the, the good fortune of playing three straight years against Andrew Jones and then Vladimir Guerrero, as you mentioned, and, and it was different. As a, as a 21-year-old or 22-year-old college player to see an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old player uh, do what they were doing, um, it's, and, and actually the position I was at, I was catching behind them. So, I mean, you distinctly hear the crack of the bat and, and watch them do that and, and hit a pitch that you don't expect them to hit. Um, it's pretty special to look back and, and realize that you were catching and playing on the same field as those guys. I was going to say, being a catcher while Vlad was batting, the crack of the bat probably made you flinch once or twice. Uh, it, it certainly did. I'll, I'll tell you, between him, Andrew Jones, and Ron Wright, I'm not sure which of the three swung harder and made harder contact, but um, it, it was fun to play against those guys. When you decided your playing career was done, you knew you wanted to stay in baseball at that point? I did. I um, I had a couple farm directors um, or or managers, you know, approach me prior to finishing to see if I wanted to coach. What my thoughts were at that time, I didn't want to coach. It was one of those things where I hadn't played in the major leagues. I didn't think that I was potentially going to be a major league coach. Um, and I had some good advice that look, if you want to work into a front office eventually, or if you want to do other things in the game. It all comes down to scouting. It all comes down to how, how you evaluate players and to see if you could get into that field and, and learn the nuances of evaluating players. So for the next eight years, you're an area scout, with Dodgers, Pirates, the Rangers. Did you take to scouting right away? I mean, playing the game is one thing. Scouting it is something entirely different. It is. Um, I believe I had some really good mentors. I know I had some really good mentors. John Barr, who's currently with the Giants, Ed Creech, who's with the Giants, uh, Jimmy Luster, these were all guys that had scouted for a long time who had signed some really good players, and they took me under their wing, and, and they taught me what it was to, to be a scout, uh, how to identify players, and if anything, they gave me the confidence to use the database of players that I had played against as, as what you need to, to use to evaluate players. Is there a specific skill set that you think makes for a better scout, or is it just experience and the more you do it, the more you learn and the better you get? Well, I think scouts come from all different sort of ways. Um, some played, some did not play. I mean, there's just a lot of avenues to get into scouting. So I think you have to use your resources and, and what, you, what you've done in your lifetime and what your experiences are. But for me, a lot of it was just to have the confidence to go in and have an opinion of a player and not be swayed by the other people talking at the ballpark or maybe even what a supervisor said, well, this guy can or can't do. It was going in there and, and really saying, this guy looks like a major league player to me. I've been on fields with major league players, um, and I'm going to stick to my guns. I like this guy. I like the way he plays the game. I like something about him. You joined the Royals September 2006 as assistant director of player development, moved to director of minor league operations two years later, eventually became the director of player development. What was the hardest part of the transition from scouting to helping run a minor league system? Uh, well, some of it, is, I guess, is the lack of autonomy. I mean, as an area scout, look, you're going where you want to go, and you're seeing the players that you want to see. Obviously, you need to see your top players, 
But in the minor leagues, you're sort of confined to that one group, you know, and you're evaluating those players. Um, yeah, obviously your schedule is a little bit more dictated uh, based off of the minor league schedule and, and some other things. But, um, you know, I think just sort of confining yourself to one group of players uh, was probably the most difficult thing at first. How much do you think it helped you having played in the minor leagues as your working player development and dealing with minor leaguers, just sort of uh, being able to feel for what they're going through in terms of a lifestyle? Because obviously playing in the minor leagues is not a, a glamorous life by any means. Sure, absolutely. I, I hope it helped a lot. I think it did. Um, I enjoyed my time with the Reds, but there were a lot of things that I took from the Reds that I felt like if I got into a situation, I would do them differently. Um, and I feel like, you know, we, we've done a lot of those things here with, with JJ's help, with Dayton's help. Um, but I, I certainly think the shared experience of knowing what players are going through and what they want to accomplish and the anxiety that they're, you know, facing as they're trying to move through the minors le- minor leagues was helpful. We all, and by we, I mean fans, media, we love to talk about each club's top 30 prospects, top 10 prospects, ranking farm systems, et cetera. When you have seven, eight, nine affiliates that you need to monitor and, and keep up with and, and really know deep on each player, how demanding is the task to do that? I mean, you've got 150, 200 players. You obviously can't see them all every day. You got to rely on the people that are in your system as coaches and managers and trainers and, and clubhouse staff. I think you need to completely rely on the people around you to, to feed you information. Um, you know, so it's, so it's certainly difficult, but... You know, people often ask, you know, so what's your what's your job? Well, my, my job is pretty simple to sort of uh, explain. You need to know where 150 players and 50 staff members are at all times. You need to know what's going on on the field and off the field with every single one of them. And if somebody calls and asks a question, you need to be able to answer it. So it, that's what you tried to do. You just tried to con- constantly get information on these players good, bad, indifferent, just know what's going on with their families, know what's going on off the field, and also obviously know what's going on on the field. Sometimes the on the field stuff's easier to track than the off the field. It seems like a big part of your job is managing people. Um, as a baseball player, that's not something you really have to worry about. Did managing people come easy to, easily to you? I would say that it, it came easy in the sense that I just try to treat people the way that I would want to be treated as a player. Um, if players are going to ask me adult questions, I'm going to give them adult answers, you know. And there's an expectation of what it takes to be a Royal. And we set those expectations pretty early on. So, you know, every player that comes in here should know what's expected of them. So, you know, the managing people, again, I think it just comes down to being having good relationships with them, making sure that you're very defined with what your expectations and your rules are. As analytics have become so prevalent in the game, uh, we've started to see them creep down into the minor leagues. Uh, at what point do you start to educate minor league players about analytics? And and I'm sure you kind of probably try to ease them in versus just throwing a, a whole load of, uh, of numbers and, and data at them. Sure. It's interesting because a lot of times the younger generation can educate the older generation. I mean, a lot of times these players are walking in, especially if they're at a major four-year program, they've been exposed to all the analytics that – that we have in our system anyway. So a lot of it is just making sure that you're on the same page with the player. You know what what background they're coming from, you know, and what their education level is on analytics. You know, and you're just you're trying to meet them halfway, you know, find out what they know, 
find out what they don't know, and figure out what's best for them moving forward. When you have a, a player in the minors who's scuffling, how do you keep them from getting discouraged when things aren't going their way? I, I don't know if we've found the perfect answer for that. It, it's tough because, again, every player's situation is different. You know, a first-round player scuffling is a lot different than a later-round pick just because of the level of expectation that's on that on that player. Um Part of it is initially just trying to find out maybe what the root cause is, you know, because maybe it's it's something off the field that is causing them to have greater issues on the field. So a lot of it's conversation. A lot of it is relying on the people that are at the affiliate with them on a daily basis because when they see myself or JJ or Dayton come in, they're naturally slightly defensive anyway because it's somebody that they're not seeing every day. So you try to use the people that are around them every day to get as much information as you can. Is it – when you talk about those expectations for a first-rounder versus a late-rounder, do you try to tell that player, don't put those expectations on yourself, just just do what you do and don't worry about what number you're ranking in the in the rankings are or uh, or, or read up on that stuff, just, just play your game? Is that a hard sort of message to send to a kid who is a first-round pick and, and, you know, has heard about these expectations? I think it's become increasingly more difficult because of social media. You know, because now – Anyone can be a writer. Anyone can have a comment on a player's game. Every game is streamed through MILB. So there's just so much more exposure. I mean, you talk to people that were in the game in the 50s and 60s, first-round picks signed and they went out, and no one knew what they did for that season until right. the end of the season uh, until maybe uh, you know the Sporting News or Baseball America you know did a, an end-of-season recap. There's just so much more immediate um, results and immediate, you know, criticism that players are having to deal with. I, I would find it very difficult to be a player in, in this age because the only way I think to survive it is to just not pay attention to social media, which is just too difficult to right. do. Well, when you're a young kid in your early 20s, social media is part of your life. You've grown up with it. It is, and it, and it creates a lot of problems because people can hide behind it and be very critical. And players don't know how to handle that. It's it's hard. I mean, you know, take an 18-year-old player that has a lot of expectations and some 25-year-old can, you know, throw a jab on social media and just walk away. Those players, you know, it hurts those players. It's it's tough. It's a difficult thing. And the proliferation of, of prospect materials, whether it's MLB Pipeline or Baseball America or whoever it may be, people know more about prospects now than they ever have before. I mean, when I was growing up, if I knew – the Yankees or Mets' top prospect. That would be about the extent of it. And now, casual fans can name the top 10, and, and real fans can probably name the top 50. I grew up an Orioles fan, and I couldn't tell you one of their prospects they ever had until they got to the big leagues. I, re- I really couldn't. But now everybody has a ranking. I mean, there's so many different rankings of systems and players and prospects, and these kids are being ranked from the time they're 12 years old. Um you know, Dayton says it a lot, and I agree with it. It's one of the most overscouted, over-evaluated generations we've ever had. And that puts a lot of pressure on players. Um, it's just a really difficult thing to navigate for players. And you do your very best to, to help them kind of get through it. But um, it's just, a you know, the social media aspect of it has made it really difficult. With all of these lists and rankings and top 10 prospects, top 30 prospects, uh, organizational rankings, fans get really into that. Do you guys pay attention to them? You obviously know what a lot of them say. Do you do you get influenced by them at all? You know, I've always sort of 
held true that the game's the ultimate evaluator. The game is the only evaluation that really matters. At the end of the day, you got to step on a field and you got to produce. And that's the only way you're going to end up getting to the big leagues and being a productive major league player. So do I look at them rarely? Because they don't, they honestly, they don't drive my day to day. It doesn't change what I do one minute of the day based on how somebody else ranks one of our players. I don't treat them any different. Uh, my day doesn't revolve around any of those rankings. I rarely look at them. Is there another sport that you think compares to baseball in terms of player development? Obviously, baseball has more players than anybody else, but just in sort of the way they approach player development. And we talked a lot about that, um, and we've actually we've done some info share with some NHL teams just because, like, extensively, like a minor league system. The right, NHL, that seems to be the one everybody points to. Yeah, the NHL. But even that's a lot, you know, very nuanced with, you know, just the way that their players are dispersed and they're not really centralized with a single affiliate that's just that team. You know, it's a lot more co-op and um, the way it works. But baseball is such a different – it's such a unique development system. I mean, the NFL, you know, college is their development system. Right. You know, and they go right from the, from college to the NFL. The NBA is very similar. Um you know, so, it, you know, you kind of operate in your own world. You once said that in A-ball, you may have a week or a month to adjust before your opponent adjusts to you. In double-A, maybe at a bat or a game. In triple-A in the big leagues, it's pitch by pitch. Is that something you hammer into young players, that the need to be able to make quicker adjustments as you move through the system is going to be vital to your success at those levels? You do, and, you know, and it's matriculated. You know, the advanced material that we give players, you know, again, the minor leagues isn't about winning and losing. Um, you know, so we've at times we've been, you know, a little bit hesitant to give like advanced materials like to win the game. You need to do this. But what we found that it has done is it allows players to prepare better for their opponent. And again, it it helps with that immediate adjustment. Oh, this particular pitcher does this. Well, I need to focus in on trying to handle this particular pitch because that's what I'm going to see. But you got to do it in the right. You got to do it in the right way. Not every player is ready to try to make those immediate adjustments. Some of them are just trying to get their feet on the ground. I mean, literally, you're dealing with such a wide spectrum of, of abilities. Um, you know, you have very raw players, you have very advanced players that can be playing in the same league. Uh, it's a very individual basis on, on trying to get players to be able to adjust. You said something interesting. You said in the minors, the wins and losses don't really matter. How strange is that? You played in the minor leagues. You've been competitive your whole life. You've played in high school. You've played in college. And then all of a sudden you get to this level where the people who are deciding your long-term fate don't care yeah. whether you win or lose, but I assume whenever you take the field, you're, the players are yeah. the, the wins and losses have to matter to the players to some extent, don't they? Yeah, we, we don't tell the players the wins and losses. Right. They don't matter necessarily. Like our, our idea is to win championships, you know, and very early on from 2006, 2007, when we had our first wave of players coming through, the idea was like you guys are, are here to win championships. We're going to teach you – how to be winning players. Now, your focus is going to be on developing into major league players, but at 7 o'clock, go win the game. Right. Do what you have to do to win the game. We don't want you to realize that you're developing along the way. We want you to go out and compete and win, but we're not going to 
fire a minor league manager halfway through the season because he's 10 games under 500. You know, from our perspective, that's more the wins and losses don't matter. We want players to go out and compete because if you can't win in the minor leagues, how are you expecting players to get to the major leagues at the highest level of competition and just flip the switch and say, oh, now we have to win tonight? Like, you can't do that. Well, it's always funny to me when a AAA team with very good young players gets to the playoffs and does right about the first week of September, and then like three of their best players are yanked off their roster to go up to the big leagues. It's like, all right, good luck in the playoffs. So, I mean, clearly, you know, as much as you, the organization would like to see their minor league teams win championships in September, if they can help them at the big league level, that's going to be more important. It is. And I will say in 11 and 12, when we had teams going through the PCL championships, a lot of times we would keep players there. Again, not we weren't forcing it one way or the other, but if we felt like there were really key important at-bats or innings where they can learn how to win big games and championships, that may be more critical in their long-term success. And uh, we, we find you know winning is very important. In 2010, you were quoted as saying, for us to be successful conservatively, 60% of our players have to be homegrown because of payroll limitations, et cetera. How much pressure does that put on a player development staff, an amateur scouting staff, et cetera, knowing that the organization can't just go out and spend lavishly on free agents and that this pipeline of players is going to determine the lifeblood of an organization for, you know, for several years to come? Honestly, I don't think it puts any pressure on them. I think it actually should invigorate them. Like, hey, you, you're the reason we're going to win. The, you're the players that you're going to scout and sign, the players that you're going to develop, it's going to be even more special when they get there and win because – you knew them when they were 18 years old. You sat in the home with them and sold them on a vision of an organization and then turned it around, and it was actually it actually came true. Uh, to me, personally, I think it, it becomes um, a greater sense of responsibility. Um, I think you develop greater camaraderie between scouting and player development by each other relying on one another. Like, it's very important, the players that we, come in, that we bring in, because our development department has to develop them to be major league players if we have any chance to win in the major leagues. During your time as director of player development, some of the players who came through your system would go on to star for Kansas City. Did you know how good players like Alex Gordon, Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis were going to be or could be potentially? I thought they were good players. I thought they were exceptional teammates. And I, I, I do believe that um, the best teams win, not the best collection of individual players. And I, and I really felt like they were really good teammates. They gelled well. You know, Alex and Luke Hochever were sort of the, the – and Billy Butler were a couple of the players that were out in front. You know, and they got to the big leagues first, and they, they learned how to be major league players. And then the other wave of players sort of came up through the minor leagues together and learned how to win championships together. When they sort of meshed, they became pretty special teammates. The Royals' record got better every season starting in 2009 on – uh, but 2014 was the first postseason appearance for the for the franchise since 1985. You guys played the Orioles, your childhood yeah. team, in the ALCS. What was that like for you and your family and friends? My mom called me in like late August because the Orioles were were running away with the East at that point. She's like, I got playoff tickets. And I'm like, you know, like our first <laughs> first or second round, if we get in, we're probably playing you. She's like, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> so it was pretty special. I mean, again, um, I grew up as an Oriole fan, but um, without question, I'm I'm certainly uh, a Royals fan more and more now. How about your mom? Uh, she, I've converted her. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you guys swept that series to get to the World Series. 
and then of course uh, lost to the Giants. Did that loss to San Francisco help sort of further motivate you guys going into the 2015 season? I would say that it did in some in some ways, but I think we also the idea of going to back to back World Series is yeah, it's a daunting task. I mean, you know, you were just hoping that wow, we just didn't miss our opportunity. You know, it wasn't Game Seven and that's it. Um, you know, I think I think we're motivated every day to come in and, and put the best product on the field we can and and build championship players and championship staffs. Um, I can't say we were more motivated in 15 than we were before. Uh, I think we were all hopeful that it wasn't the last chance we were going to have. When you think back to that run in 2015, are there one or two memories that, that stand out for you? Uh, I have a lot of them. I think seeing a wave of players win like a Texas League championship and then a PCL championship and then standing in a locker room with them, you know, after winning an American League championship, um, pretty special you know a lot of memories Kedris Morales home run off Dallas Keuchel I think uh, in game five was, was a pretty special um, swing of the bat I think I think at that point it was like wow okay you know because I think we, we were we were such against the wall in game four I think once we we won that series I think there was a little bit of a sigh, like, okay, we got through this first round. After coming off of 14, going into 15, you know, getting through that, that first round of, like, getting playoff baseball back under your belt, um, that, was a, that was a pretty special one. You know, Eric sliding home uh, head first, uh, even though I had told him countless times in the minor leagues, don't sl- <laughs> do not slide head first. Um, that was a pretty special one. I mean, I, I, there were a lot of them. I mean, Christian Colon, you know, I think in, like, in groups uh, of memories, and Christian Colon's our first-round pick, and he knocked in Gerard Dyson, who was a 50th-round pick. So you got number one knocking in 50. Um, you know, we clinched the American League in 14 with a ground ball thrown from Greg Holland to Salvador Perez, hit to Mike Moustakis, thrown to Eric Hosmer, all homegrown players. 15 to beat the Blue Jays was almost the exact same play except Wade Davis threw the pitch. So, you know, I, I kind of think in groups of, uh, of plays and memories and how players are interconnected. As you're watching some of these players have these moments in that postseason and even the postseason before, and you've been in charge of player development, you've sort of helped nurture them through the system, do you start thinking back to their younger days and sort of how far they've come and where they've come uh, you know, to get to the point where they are here playing in the World Series and then winning it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know how you could operate and not think about that. I mean, just meeting Giordano Ventura the first time as, you know, as a, as a really skinny 18-year-old kid and meeting Mike Moustakis or Eric Hosmer in Idaho Falls, you know, and doing his press conference on the field in Idaho Falls, um, you know, after he signed and went there. And, and now all of a sudden it actually went so fast that you, you – you remember those things so vividly, like, wow, I remember the first day I, I met them, and now they're on a national stage winning games, you know, in a World Series or in a playoff setting. Did those two seasons change the culture within the organization? I think they, yeah, I, th- I think they did. I mean, I think our, I think we changed, um, and I, I didn't know it beforehand, but I think we changed when Dayton arrived, and the mentality was, look, we're going to do everything possible to make this the organization that it's capable of being and, and you know, reliving the rich tradition that they had in the 80s. Um, you know, I think our expectation was always to win, and, and we never thought we couldn't. 
Um, you know, so I think it was just sort of a culmination of like we, we, we knew in our hearts we could do this, in our minds we could do this, and, and we did it. 2019 will be your second season in your current role as uh, assistant GM. Um, every club, some clubs have a lot of assistant GMs, some clubs yeah. have one. Uh, in your role as assistant GM, what areas do you focus on the most on a day-to-day basis? I'm with the major league team a lot. I, I travel with them probably 50% of the trips during the season. So, you know, if Dayton's not with the team, um, someone else may not be with the team. It's it's transactional in nature. If we get a guy going up, guy moving down, player movement, um, you know, that's in season. I also still am fairly involved in the minor leagues. Um, you know, I keep in touch with J.J. and Alex Zumwalt on a – on a pretty regular basis, just to see what's going on in the, uh, you know, in the minor leagues and and how things are progressing there. I'll see most of our affiliates. Um, I deal a lot with, you know, arbitration, major league contracts, minor league contracts. Um, you know, the day to day operations at home. So, it's a lot like being a a farm director. Like every day is different in in some ways. Of all those things you just mentioned, what's your favorite part of the job? Which area? When you're involved with it, do you sort of get your juices flowing the most? It's still being around players, so it would be either being with the major league team or being in the minor leagues and seeing guys perform and and talking to players and interacting with staff and coaches. Um, you know, I still, in some odd way, view myself as sort of a player and a scout and evaluator. I mean, that's that's what I I'm passionate about. That's what I I love doing. I like watching guys play the game. You talked before about not paying real close attention to lists and rankings and such. This winter when the Mets GM job was open, your name surfaced early as a potential candidate. Uh, I assume even if you're not reading that, your friends and family are letting you know that that stuff's out there? Sure, they are. And, you know, look, it's a, it's a, it's a small industry that we work in. I mean, um, you know, and you get to a point that, sure, you mean your name's out there. You know, you, you view it as a compliment. There's only 30 of those opportunities available. Um, but yeah, you're you're certainly aware. Dayton once said of you, "quote He's a non-emotional thinker, which is important in this job." Uh, did that approach come naturally to you? Is that something you had to teach yourself to be able to try to keep emotions out of it as you're, uh, you know, going about your business, whether it's with minor leaguers yeah. or major leaguers or, or anything else? I've always sort of been that way. <laughs> I guess it's just my my personality. Um, I can't say that I've taught myself that. I, I just try to. I just try not to get too high, too low, you know, and, and try to think of things in a very sort of even keel way, try to digest it and process it and figure out maybe the best solution or the best answer I, I, I want to give before I before I do or say something. Was that your approach as a player as well? Probably so. I think so. So it's just it's just your personality. It's just it's sort of yeah. it sort of works well in this yeah, job, right? Actually I probably get it from my father. My father was a very sort of you know, process information, and then you know, not don't get too emotional on it. Is becoming a general manager your ultimate goal in this game? I, I would like to do it because I like you know, even from a from the time that I was very young, whether it was playing uh, or not, I've had the vision of like trying to put teams together. You always want to put teams together, whether you're in your backyard or in your neighborhood picking teams. Let's pick teams and win. Um, so I like the concept of that. I've I've been very fortunate to learn. A tremendous amount from Dayton and JJ on what it takes to to build leaders and to build an organization. So I'd like to be able to put that in practice. Um, I have a tremendous job now um, with working with 
unbelievable individuals, which I would find very difficult not to continue to work with them. So I, I feel very fortunate that I get to, to work with, with these people every day. Scott Sharp, Royals Vice President, System General Manager. Thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Many thanks to Scott Sharp for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes, I'll sit down with Orioles General Manager Mike Elias, Brewers Farm Director Tom Flanagan, and other executives around the league. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.